when I've done collaborations outside the arts, it's always been me reaching out to them. I rarely see it go the other way. So that mm -hmm. the scientist, the biologist, the physicist, the engineer comes to the dance department. Hello and welcome to Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Camillus. My name is Barbara St. Clair and I'm your host. And with me today is Mary Lynn Morris. She is a dancer, a professor at the University of South Florida in Tampa, and also an adventurer and an inventor and an explorer of what dance really means and who dancers are and what a dancing body is. There are a lot of different prongs to what I do as, a, as an artist, as an educator, as a researcher. Uh, a key thing is the innovation, the innovator part of me, which I think, of course, a lot of artists are uh, essentially explorers, innovators. And I think that innovative spirit and, and questioning certainly a lot of aspects of the status quo and, and looking at dance from a lot of different angles, how we look at dance, what we think of, what comes to mind when we say dancer. You know, there certainly are traditions we have, what bodies can partake in, in dance. And so what, what I love and what, what excites me and has, has excited me for a long time now, since, since I started kind of the work in 2002, you know, I love the way that dancers with disabilities really, in my view, really push our field forward. They make us question our training practices, how we can expand our training practices, we can make them more accessible, how we can innovate in our creativity choreographically. If you have a dancer without legs or who uses a wheelchair or has another way of understanding dance or communicating through their body, that frankly, by nature is innovative. So it pushes the field to really say, how do we explore the artistry? And, and that's, you know, what continues to excite me about the dance and disability world and what's happening in that field and how it makes us uh, continually question our practices and re reinvest again in the artistry and not get so stuck sometimes in a, a technical prowess or a specific technique. I collaborate with Arts for All Florida, an arts and disability organization that is statewide and does statewide programming across the state. I'm on the board and we collaborate really on a yearly basis in, in relation to arts and disability and dance and disability kind of projects. And this past year, it was the 40th anniversary of Arts for All Florida and involved bringing dancers with disabilities, professional dancers to the campus, performing, working with our students. Mark Brew, beautiful choreographer from Scotland, came and choreographed a, a piece as a wheelchair user. This was really the first time that our dancers, our dance students really worked with a choreographer with a significant disability in this manner. I love working with techs, I love collaborating. I worked with architects in the past, I've worked with musicians. intimately involved in and reinvesting in and have been involved in for a long time as well is performing arts medicine, specifically mm. dance medicine, dance science. And that's another place that I have kind of tried to innovate in by creating new curricular paths in our program for students who are interested in that field. Dance medicine, dance science has to do with the health and wellness of performing artists from all aspects, whether it's mental health, physical health. So we're talking about our training practices. We're looking at flooring. We're looking at 
shoe wear or, or, or costuming or whatever has to do with health and wellness. And how do we train dancers better? And how do we train them longer and create longevity in the field mentally and physically? That really interests me a lot. And it certainly does intersect with, with the disability piece and, and disability dance. There's another piece of dance medicine, dance science, also that includes dance for health, using dance in different settings with different people for social impacts, to increase, you know, social emotional awareness, that kind of thing, using dance in Parkinson's populations, using dance with, you know, at-risk teens. That's also part of the, the, the umbrella of dance medicine, dance science. It involves medical professionals working with dancers, dance educators, uh, people like myself, dance scientists. So that's another uh, aspect of my research and also uh, curricular innovation. A lot of times when we think about the arts or talk about the arts, we talk about the relationship of the performer to the audience. But just listening to you, if I were to step back, you're redefining what the performing art of dance is in a far more complex and interesting manner than, than a dualism between a performer and an audience or a dualism between a dancer and a choreographer. And one of the ways that you have referred to it in the past is the dancing body. And I thought that was so interesting because it cuts through the sort of hierarchy of what real dance is and then, you know, dance, but it's with people in a wheelchair and you're right. like, no, no, no. You know, traditionally there's been perceptions that, you know, one type of dance, particularly like classical ballet or ballet kind of sits at the, at the top and then these other things fall underneath it. And that hierarchical vision of, of dance is really problematic. And a lot of educators have, have recognized that. There's a lot of questioning of that. It's been going on for, for some time now. Certainly, it's becoming more heightened, let's say, a discussion about race and dance, right? Again, what bodies have permission to hold those spaces, how uh, sometimes dance is racialized. In the past, it certainly has been. But again, those things, those barriers, a lot of those barriers are, are changing. I see, I see positive things happening. I see dancers who identify as transgendered. I see dancers, of course, of a variety of racial and demographic backgrounds. I do see more incorporation of dancers with disabilities and attention simply to that population that, that it exists. But I think there's more work to do, you know, on different sectors and, and certainly getting the word out, making sure that the visibility is there so that there can be a, a change in sort of perception. And it seems like simultaneously, while certainly in my kind of world of dance education, there's a lot of what I would call healthy awareness about diversity of bodies in dance, there seems to be simultaneously some other places, maybe, maybe competition dance, that kind of thing, where this, again, this kind of extreme body that does these extreme technical feats is, is what all dance should be. And so it seems like simultaneous to a kind of growing awareness of diversity and, and broadening, we, we are also, there's a sort of other thing that, that's happening in different circles of, of narrowing, let's say, or, right. or, or pushing in a way that, that maybe isn't, in, in my regard, uh, you know, as healthy for the field as, as a whole. You know, I come from actually a ballet background, a pretty strong ballet background. So in some ways, having the contrast of a, of a very kind of strict classical ballet training that embedded in me 
a sense of sort of correctness in movement and correctness in form. Coming mm -hmm. from that background and being exposed to the dance and disability field, I think that contrast has been such a, a beautiful journey personally where I've, I, my own lens over time has, has shifted, mm -hmm. but it also mm -hmm. takes some really intentional work, you know, yeah. like, like, like all of us, I mean, with our biases or our, our certain backgrounds that we bring to things, when we see things, we bring our past histories and our past experiences to it. So in order to change the lens, begin to deconstruct the lens a bit, there's work that's involved in, in that. Certainly exposure is a part of it. I mean, if you're exposed to seeing a diversity of bodies on stage and it informs you differently. It also relates to the stories that get to be told. The work you're doing and others are doing are shaking up some of the prejudices that mm -hmm. only certain bodies deserve the opportunity to develop that rigor or right. only certain bodies have the capacity to develop that rigor and all of those things which are, are thankfully being unpacked, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. also by unpacking them and opening up the stage, so to speak, to bodies that are different, you also then get to open up the storytelling to have access to those stories. Right, right, right. Well, I think and you're so right because we need, we actually need, again, multiple perspectives. We need multiple bodies. We need people from different walks of life, you know, giving us that gift, actually, giving us the gift of their experience and through, through dance or whatever medium they may be working through. You actually have developed tools for dancers so that their ability to participate and maybe develop that rigor and develop those storytelling skills and break through some of the walls between dancers and audiences in different ways. And I want you to, to share with people some of your inventions, but also why did you do it? And how did you come to the <laughs> I can make it, I can invent this thing. Sure, sure, sure. You know, like a lot of things, when you look back, you think, how did that happen? You know, there, there are definitely times when you kind of, kind of question, you know, how, because things are not linear, you know, there are opportunities that open, opportunities that close, doors that open, doors that close. And it's been a, it's been a quite an interesting journey. It's been a challenging journey. I've learned a lot. Um, it's still ongoing. You know, disability is a, it can be a very, a very fluctuating thing over one's lifetime, right? At any time we're injured, at any time something happens, whatever, mentally, physically, whatever it might be, it, it is an interesting space because of that kind of fluidity that a, that a disability might have. Even a permanent disability may fluctuate in its nature, right? A person with MS, one day they're, they're experiencing a certain kind of thing in their body, another day changes. So human mobility is is kind of applicable and, and important to us all whether we're driving cars riding bicycles you know climbing ladders or whatever kinds of tools we're using to get us from one place to the next to 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 have us interact right we're using right now this technology you and i are using this technology in order to interact in order to produce something that'll go somewhere it's a mobility tool right yeah. so you know my essentially my glasses if i take off my glasses i can't see the hand, barely the hand in front of my face. It's a mobility tool essentially to allow me to interact with my environment. It's, it's essentially an assistive device. My glasses are my contacts if I wear contacts. And so I think that access tools, we can, we can call them, or um, mobility tools are important to all of us. 
and, and in that sense, innovating inside of that space is important to all of us because it, it, it affects how we can extend our capacities, our abilities, or like you said, fine tune those capacities and abilities to interact with the world. Um, so like the invention of the wheelchair was, was absolutely brilliant in the sense that, and you know, a variety of iterations occurred before, before the sort of traditional form we, we see in a manual chair came to pass. But that was fantastic in terms of getting some individuals who were typically either institutionalized or told they couldn't do things, uh, not able to interact in society, getting them in a place through that mobility device where they could interact in society in, in, in a more fluid way, in an easier way, where they got that access. So, so thank heavens for those kinds of assistive technology tools that have been invented. So in, so in my mind, two experiences kind of motivated me. One was in my family experience, my father was injured in a really severe car accident when I was 12 years old. He suffered a very severe brain injury. He was not expected to survive. He was in a coma for about a month. But he had a lot of, he had a seizure condition, so he would often have different types of paralysis in his body in addition to the brain injury. He was a very different person post-brain injury. You know, brain injuries are, are fascinating things. He had some old knowledge. He sort of seemed to lack some of the um, sort, of, sort of basic reasoning skills that are associated with kind of like frontal lobe function. But yet he had this kind of old knowledge where he could, you know, answer Jeopardy questions, you know. Um, and he also had a sense of humor that was still in there. And, and you know, he was, he was a different different person and it was hard to sort of figure that out when when those life-changing situations happen you know they are not without sadness they are not without challenge they are not without uh difficulty uh but there are also beautiful possibilities inside of that and that's the that's the accent that's the place we want to focus we want to try to focus because that's where we'll get to innovation. That's when we can get to innovation versus dwelling in the other. So my dad's experience certainly informed that um, he used wheelchairs, uh, a variety of different chairs. And uh, quite frankly, you know, uh, my mom and I were sometimes frustrated with the types of devices that, that he had. They weren't sort of always conducive to what we were, you know, trying to help him do or, 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 or really conducive to our interactions with him. So I think those planted some seeds for me as to, hmm, I wonder if these could be you know, what else can happen with these mobility devices? Can they do something uh, different? Can they create a different sort of interaction, interaction possibilities, uh, relationships with people, and uh, can they be controlled differently? So that, as well as in 2002, I started working with dancers with disabilities, specifically physical disabilities, where these dancers were using wheelchairs and had a lot of upper body mobility, specifically were able to, to express with arms and hands and that sort of thing. And it, it, you know, it started me thinking again, questioning the, the mobility tool as to, well, if we kind of were really thinking of this for dance, if, it, if, if, if wheelchairs or mobility devices from the outset were thought of as needing to be dance specific, how would they have evolved? So, so that sort of was my entry into looking at both the aesthetics of the form, as well as looking at the control. In particular, I was interested in creating a hands-free control. So mm -hmm. how could the dancers, uh, for instance, since they lean forward and uh, lean back, like lean forward and go forward, lean back and go back and mm -hmm. to move through space. So that led me down the path of working with engineers, collaborating with engineers at USF, 
doing my own research in, in existing technologies and seeing what was out there, including like Segway technology, which, you know, uses gyroscope technology in response to basically weight shifts as you're standing on the device. Well, what if we mounted a seat on a Segway? Could we explore that? Where would that get us? You know, is this really a useful idea? And I still question that. I mean, to be honest with you, like I'm a, I think reflection and questioning is always an important part of any practice. And, you know, I still question like, is this is this a good solution? Is this a helpful solution? Who is it helpful for? How do we make it better? Those are my questions. And so I have, I have a prototype device. The developments of the mobility devices that have been developed so far, there have been five U.S. patents received for them. I think that it would be good for the audience to know about that chair is, for example, it doesn't just move left, right, front, and back. It moves like a dancer might move across the stage. And so when you said, what would a wheelchair be like if it had been designed for a dancer in the first place? Well, mm -hmm. clearly it wouldn't just have moved front and back, left and right, right? It would flow. And so you designed a chair that flows, but also people can raise up. And so they can see you at eye level. It's such a small but profound detail. Somebody in a wheelchair that doesn't have that ability to move up and down doesn't have the ability to look someone in the eye or mm -hmm. face to face. Also, you are working on the ability to manage it through iPhone or an application. Yeah. So there's two key things that are different. And then there's some other things that add to the differences from a functional perspective. A key difference is, like you said, because of the omnidirectionality of the wheels, the device can move forward, back, side, side, and diagonal, and also rotate. So the spatial motion possibilities are increased, let's say, than in traditional manual chairs and traditional kind of powered chairs where the device moves forward, back, and typically rotates right and left. Typically, it's not side-to-side -side motion or diagonal motion. So that was achieved through the omnidirectional wheel system. The other piece of it is the control system. And so that goes back to that idea of Segway technology, where the intent was to not necessarily have a control system that was reliant on hands or arms to control it. So rather the hands or arms could be free and the body itself would direct the chair's motion in some way. Again, several iterations have, have occurred of that concept. One of them including embedding seat sensors so that the seat itself responded to pressure changes. Hmm which is still an interesting concept. We had issues with stability and dancers with disabilities. I've had test the chair, explore the chair, give me feedback throughout this process and try to sort of figure out from a, from a safety perspective, obviously that's important, but what, what really will work in the conceptual goal here. The current prototype actually uses a remote control, essentially the phone system and tapping into the motion sensor technology of the phone so that if you wear this mobile control, essentially, then if you lean forward, the chair moves forward. If you lean back, the chair moves back. If you lean side, the chair moves to the side, etc. You can also, with the mobile control, what's, what's, what I think is very promising about that is that you can program it for an individual. 
In other words, mm -hmm. you could set a baseline speed, you could set a, a different degree of sensitivity so that it would require more leaning to cause the motion to happen or it would cause less leaning to cause emotion. It could be more sensitive or less sensitive to motion for a particular user. You can also completely change the programming. It's a programmable thing. So you could, if, if a person wanted the chair to respond differently, like let's say they wanted to lean forward and go backwards they could. So this is so interesting to me because earlier you talked about the place where innovation happens. And so as I was listening to you, you know, as an quote unquote, and I put that in quotes, I wear hearing aids, I wear glasses, I have no turnout. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so all of us bring who we are to the moment, right? right, right. But as a sort of more considered an able person, it doesn't occur to me that in order to be mobile, I can't move my hands. I don't have full freedom of my hands and arms because I'm moving a wheelchair. And so I, I don't think about that. And as you were speaking, though, I start thinking about how much mobility I take for granted in working with people who have different levels of mobility or different freedom in their mobility and working with them as dancers you were trying to solve a different problem than maybe a wheelchair manufacturer. And you recognize the problem in a way that made you ask the question that brought you to a different answer. How would you have a wheelchair that a person had complete freedom mm -hmm. of their upper body movement and their arms and their hands? Because as a dancer, you want to be able to express your story with your arms and your hands if you can. Mm -hmm. And so it really strikes me as asking the question in a different way that leads to different answers. Right. Well, and, and even, I mean, along those lines, what's, what's sort of fascinating that I continue to sort of encounter is that every time you move the control system, you, you still create another limitation, right? So the goal yes. is to create a lot of freedom of movement, but then at some point, wherever the control is affixed, I mean, from your head to your arm, to your forearm, it also depends, of course, on the person's body, because you do have those individuals for whom upper body is not actually the main thing, right? So, so again, depending on what lens is coming at it or what perspectives are coming at it, a different type of chair might be birthed, a different type of mobility device might be birthed, which is why it's nice to bring different perspectives to the table. And, and my hope actually was to kind of instigate just different thinking about the device and bring attention specifically to dance and the arts where we're doing these amazing things. These dancers with disabilities, they're, they're turning their wheelchairs upside down. They're, they're doing all kinds of really fascinating things with the devices. And in my mind, that very much signals, well, if a dancer wants to do that with the device, how can we better facilitate that? How can we make a wheelchair fly, right? I mean, can we do that? You know, and that's, that's what we do as creative artists is explore and invent and collaborate together, you know, and so the aesthetic was also important, right? Rather than it looking perhaps like a traditional, let's say medical aid that does have certain connotations to it, can, can, can we also like play with the aesthetic? Can, it, can we have interchangeable seats so that a, a dancer for one piece wants to look a, cert, a certain look and a different look in this way? So the, there's a single post that would allow pretty easily for interchangeable seats that there was a goal to heighten attention to the dancer and not the device so that it could it's kind of we'd see the body moving more than we would, we would necessarily see this kind of apparatus even though the apparatus is certainly part of the body it's, a, it's a, certainly an extension of the body and very much it, it is it is its own body you know in sports there are different chairs there are rugby chairs there are basketball chairs 
they've been targeted to kind of help in that sport. So there, mm -hmm. there are lenses that sports has brought to like, let's reconceptualize this design a bit. I wouldn't necessarily say that they're super radical changes, but I certainly do see a lot of interesting shifts in the sports area with assistive technology. Not everybody also can use a manual wheelchair very, very well or can use even certain power chairs very well. So it is wanting to give more creative mobility tools, just like, you know, we have flamenco shoes, we have character shoes, we have toe shoes, we have tap mm -hmm. shoes, we have, and there's a zillion types of toe shoes for different dancers who want a different feel and a different flexibility. There's a lot of technologies. There's aerial, aerial silks. You see, you know, people using aerial silks for different mobility. Reconceptualizing a wheelchair isn't that different. It's not that different from, that same pathway of tools to encourage a different type of mobility, additional types of mobility. And that's what I try to remind people of as well. We do that in the arts. Choreographers use tools of all kinds, chairs. I mean, you know, look at Cirque du Soleil, goodness. I mean, there have so many, you know, it's, and it's not necessarily for disability. And that's where I say, you can kind of, you can kind of get a bigger picture of inclusion when you start thinking, you know, creatively about mobility and start right. to incorporate a lot of different possibilities. What really struck me when you were talking is, is if I find this about artists, and, and I'm gonna say this a little bit with air quotes, only an artist would say, well, it's just like toe shoes. <laughs> because, and I mean that because artists are not, they're not bound by the same barriers that other professions seem to bind themselves with sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it's like very logical for an artist to say, well, if we can invent a better toe shoe, of course we can invent a better mobility device. Right. A toe shoe is just one kind of mobility. That, that kind of artistic freedom about, how do we solve, and I, 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 I hate to use the word problem, but I use it in an algebraic way. How do we solve this particular problem of moving this person in space? Right. Those were some innovative deans in, in that sense. You know, they were saying, well, we can create a path. We can create a resource. We can create a potentiality and, you know, see where it lands. They were willing to take that risk. And, you know, with, with creative process, there's a lot of failure in it. With invention, there's tons of failure. It, it's natural. It's, it's natural to have a lot of missteps, things that don't work and, you know, until you get to a good solution. So I've had to remind myself of that sometimes because part of innovation is failure. <laughs> so. I've always been sort of fascinated with the relationship between human beings and human bodies and the stuff that we interact with, whether it be computers, phones, wheelchairs, whatever it might be that we, we consider material objects basically outside of our bodies and how those things define us a lot of times, classify us, sometimes inhibit us, mm -hmm. sometimes imprison us, mm. and sometimes liberate us. And, and where the tension of all that really is. So it certainly relates to the assistive technology because in the assistive technology that I developed, there's this constant negotiation of agency where quite frankly, sometimes I feel like the assistive device is in charge of me and I'm not, I'm not in charge of it at all. How these things, these material objects really shape our identity. So, you know, if we don't have a purse or we don't have a cell phone or we don't have certain things that we're used to having, 
we feel like we can feel extremely destabilized in, in terms of our identity. One of the texts that I really enjoyed during my dissertation work was Sherry Turkle's book called Evocative Objects, Things We Think With. And that is where I kind of resonate is, you know, she talks about an individual and how their ballet shoes were really tied into who they were and what the ballet shoes represented in terms of memory and loss and edification all at the same time. And then it also talks about the relationship of a diabetic to their glucometer, that certain things are, are very much life and death relationships of our, of our bodies to an object, to a thing outside of ourselves. And so I'm just really interested in where the agency is, where the complication is, where the freedom is. If you look at my choreography, I'm often in involving things with it, whether it's chairs, whether it's, I use a lot of materials like fabrics. Every time I think about choreography, objects come to mind for me. Hmm. So it's always, it's always kind of been that way. And I actually made myself one time, I'm like, okay, you're not going to use, you're not going to use a tool in this piece. You're not going to use, you know, any object. And I still ended up in that piece using hats, you know, <laughs> so I've just kind of accepted at this point that I have some kind of constant need to have objects and structures in dance, in the choreography, whether it's, you know, aerial silks or it's, it's scarves and material or hats or chairs or skateboards, or, I mean, I choreographed a piece using segues and fabric. The interest for me was really about exploring the motion possibilities in that and what birthed out of the motion possibilities of these like rolling devices with this kind of gossamer fabric and like the contrast between the sort of robotic device and this fabric that has a very different texture. We live in a really different world than the world that launched ballet or modern dance or even the tango. We live in a world that has all of those objects in it. And so I'm, I think I'm actually more interested in seeing dance that is speaking to the world that I experience. Mm -hmm. I love dance and I'm invested in it. And I think dancers, they bring a lot to the table, working with engineers, working in the sciences, trying to bring artists to have a voice at the table of, of, of solving societal problems, right? So that, okay, you have an artist, you have a, an engineer, you have a person from the corporate world, you have a person with, you know, like that's a really, the, the, the notion that artists don't necessarily simply need to reside in this little space called entertainment or whatever you want to put them in, that actually they can, because of their practices that they do in creative process and all of these things, what they bring as individuals, can they be at, at a table where typically, you know, you would only have particular discipline. We wouldn't have gotten to this particular innovation solution for this device unless I had actually brought this kind of dance lens to it. And that I, I hope can happen more. Just crossing disciplinary boundaries. Usually when I've done collaborations with outside the arts, let's say, it's always been me reaching out to them. And so me saying, you know, like I went to the engineer, hey, I have this idea. What do you think about this? You know, are you interested? I rarely see it go the other way so that mm -hmm. the scientist, the biologist says the physicist, the physics person, the engineer, the business, you know, comes to the dance department and says, you know, 
You yeah. all work with human beings and expression all the time, communicating human ideas and experiences, and you work with human bodies and your designers are form in motion. And hey, could we, here's an interesting thing. I thought it would be interesting to bring your, your perspective to the table on this project I'm doing, you know, X, Y, or Z, whatever innovation or whatever research they're doing. I would love to see it happen the other way sometime. We have big problems in the world. You know, it, it helps to have a lot of different perspectives at that, at that table. I think it is about asking the question and not being afraid to dialogue around the question, even if you don't have the answers to it. We can all have different opinions and, and bring different things to the table. And therefore, maybe we create different kinds of spaces for, for dance to happen or different kinds of spaces for art making to happen because we're bringing different perspectives to it. And it doesn't mean everyone has to create that particular kind of a space. But if, if we recognize and we agree to and we support others for creating different types of dance spaces where different types of creation are happening and different approaches are happening, you know, I think that's healthy. You know, I'm, in, I'm at a university where entrance to our dance program is via audition. So students essentially come in with already having a lot of skills under their belt, generally speaking, and, and specifically in two different forms, ballet and modern. That naturally limits, you know, someone who has a flamenco background or has a, a hip hop background or has not taken dance at all or it's that questioning piece of it, like, like is happening a lot now with, with different sexualities, different, different types of, of bodies and, and approaches to what dance looks like, you know, to really reshape certainly something that's been embedded for a long time. I mean, it is, it, it does take intentional, there's a, there's a, there's a process reconstructing curriculum, particularly in, in relationship to race, because that's one of the biggest conversations going on is educators are, are questioning, you know, the design. Again, we go back to design. How are we designing things for who are we designing things? The design of dance programs, who's being left out of the room and who's being included. Is there predominantly one racial representation here? And why is that? You know, is there predominantly mm -hmm. one type of sexual orientation here? Is there one type of ability, you know, even in the disability dance arena, you know, there are plenty of people and dancers who do not use assistive technology. They don't use a wheelchair. They have essentially, you know, an invisible disability, you know, deaf dancers, dancers who are blind or, or low vision. Like for instance, there was a woman who uh, worked with Infinity Dance Theater and is a blind dancer. And I told her that I worked with dance and disability and integrated programming. And she said, well, do you have any dancers who are blind or, or low vision? And I remember her comment was, you know, I hate being the only one. As a dance educator, I don't think that dancers' bodies should be kind of, you know, used and abused and then thrown out, you know, in their early 20s when they can't do these harsh sort of things to their body anymore. I, I would really like to see more longevity in the field. And when they're young, a lot of times they don't realize what they're doing to their bodies. So I think th there, there needs to be a lot more like early intervention of good sound communication of health. Uh, and again, that's mental and physical. So it's not always, we're talking about physical things, but mental too. It's a hard field, you know, in dance, a lot of times dancers are always in front of a mirror, you know, they're always checking themselves. They're always in a constant looking at body image and comparing their body image. There's a lot of perfectionism in the field. There's a lot of different types of demands from choreographers to other peers. So how to, how to navigate all of those demands, you know, healthfully, how to, how to take critique how to manage critique and not have it turn into a, a negative behavior. There's a performing arts medicine collaborative at USF 
made up of a variety of health professionals and performing arts educators. We typically have a conference every other year. So that's a form of kind of engaging with community about performing arts medicine. We're trying as much as possible, even you know, inside of USF, to make sure that our dancers and our musicians and the various performing artists, all artists really, have access to good resources. My body's changed over time and, and I have some chronic pain issues that I'm navigating. So I don't, I'm at a, an interesting place as to what it means to be a dancer, actually. What does that mean to me? Because my former identity as a dancer is quite different. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't fly through the space and do particular kinds of movements anymore. I don't, I don't do big jumps. I mean, it just, there's a whole repertoire in my, let's say my neuromuscular system that doesn't get used anymore. So what does that mean? How do I shift it? How do I still pull from that kind of archive of, of embodied knowledge? What do I do with it? I think it's a big question, you know, for aging dancers, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, aging dancers, we, I think we have a lot of uh, uh, things to sort of figure out still. And, and again, that's, that's why I like being in the disability community because it gives me ideas and there, it seems like there's <laughs> that a lot of times we're good at creating solutions, let's say outside of ourselves. Right. But when it comes to our own personal walk, right. Our own personal, so my own personal sort of experience with my relationship with my body over time as a dancer is complicated and I, I'm still, I'm still figuring it out. You know, I'm still figuring out what is, what does that mean? You know, some people make a very a very distinct change and to say like, well, that, you know, that was my dancer life. That was my professional life. And now I'm a teacher and I identify mm -hmm. as a teacher and, you know, sort of, and I don't, I don't know where I'm at with all of that right now. Um, I certainly still feel the instinct to dance and move and be a moving human <laughs> and move in mm -hmm. fluid ways. But yeah, my body's changed. It's changing. And so I don't know. We'll see. I've been talking to Marilyn Morris, a dancer, a choreographer, an inventor, academic at USF, and I would say a Renaissance person. Thank you so much for being here for Thank this podcast. You. Thank you very much, Barbara. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>